voices are exotic dancers enter one by one Make love to all of your orifices and your seduction Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. This episode is entitled Leviticus, and in it, we're going to answer the following big questions. How should we think? What is the best way to think? What is our relationship to reality? How should we organize ourselves so that we are living our best lives? It is an undeniable fact that life went from being essentially a group of molecules trapped in a phospholipid bilayer or cell to a problem-solving superstar brain, otherwise known as humanity. In the previous chapter, we demonstrated how this occurred, evolution, and we can demonstrate nearly every step of our evolutionary past to the present time. Not only can we map our direct path backwards through evolutionary time, all the way to life's most simple forms, but we can also look to our contemporaries to see how they evolved and how we all evolved together. There have been multiple peer-reviewed studies demonstrating that other life forms, not just humans, show signs of heightened intelligence. We have also unearthed our former contemporaries that have since gone extinct, some so closely related to us that we still would likely be able to interbreed with them if they were alive today. Species like Neanderthals, Florenziensis, and Luzonensis demonstrated culture and knowledge very similar to our own of that era. But for some, this still isn't enough to convince them that we evolved to be as smart as we are. To them, our brains are just too advanced. So what was it that changed in our evolution to skew us so drastically in the direction towards having such useful and productive brains? There are some that would propose a miraculous answer. There are others that would point to the stars to suggest that extraterrestrial life intervened in our evolution. The real answer is far less grandiose and more insightful. The answer is systems. For roughly 7 million years, we very gradually adopted more and more useful systems. At the same time, our brains were growing with each passing millennia, and as a result, our systems became more and more useful. Perhaps the first system we developed that gave way to our first huge advantage was carving rocks into specific shapes, or perhaps it was language that gave us our first huge advantage. Whatever the first system that we invented might have been, it paved the way for us to further grow our brain size, and our brains are still growing today. Without a doubt, the system that has been the most beneficial to us is the scientific method. At its most rudimentary, the scientific method gave rise to systems for making tools, building shelters, organizing people, and the agricultural revolution. At its intermediate application, it gave rise to industry, political systems, economies, and great civilizations, such as the ancient Greeks. Once the scientific method was formalized, though, into a system of its own, it completely reshaped our entire worldview. By employing a formalized scientific method, we've nurtured an understanding of reality so useful that we've managed to leave the planet and extend our lives many times over. You may think that I'm giving science and the scientific method too much credit. After all, 
The scientific method wasn't formalized until 1561, and humanity has had lots of advancements before that time. While it is true that the system we know of today didn't have any formal refinement, the process of observation, hypothesizing, experimentation, and finally implementation was wrote throughout humanity's existence. Only it was called trial and error, and was passed on word of mouth and through family trades. Humans have been doing that process for millennia. We just hadn't formalized it into a process and coupled it with other necessary scientific ideas, like inductive reasoning and probability. Once we did, however, and got really strict on what constitutes evidence and set out to purposefully answer the greatest mysteries yet to be understood, our knowledge shot up like a rocket ship into space. Pun intended. If human understanding of reality were a line graph, it would be nearly flat, with just slight bumps up from plateau to plateau until it reached Aristotle. Then that flat, straight line would turn from linear to exponential, curving upwardly slowly at first until it reached modern day, where it rises at an almost perfectly vertical climb. No matter what you believe or how you believe, it is impossible to argue against the benefits and the advantages humans have gained since formalizing the scientific method. The method has led to every major breakthrough in human understanding, and since its formalization, the breakthroughs have been so large and so distinct that it is now difficult to imagine life without the scientific method as our guide. Further refining the scientific method, inductive and deductive reasoning. Once we realized the power of the scientific method, specifically inductive reasoning, we started to make our first true prophecies. No longer were they unspecific and vague, but rather so detailed and accurate that we were able to predict the exact path of a comet that only comes around every 80 years, down to the last second. Just to be clear, the power of inductive reasoning, that is observation, hypothesis, experimentation, and implementation, with some math sprinkled in, gave us the predictive power to prophesy a comet's trajectory through 3D space and time with pinpoint accuracy. In 1705, Edmund Halley made his prediction, and in 1758, after he had already died, the comet streaked through the sky at the precise time he predicted, and in the exact location that he predicted. This is a feat so incredible to accomplish that it should stand on its own as perhaps the most impressive human accomplishment to date. However, the scientific method is so powerful that this accomplishment is now dwarfed in comparison to what we've been able to achieve. But before we figured out inductive reasoning, we had deductive reasoning, both of which are very useful tools, but also very different. There are many that would like for science's predictive application to be deductive in nature and reject it because it is not. When using deductive reasoning, evidence is necessary, but the truth discovered during the deductive reasoning process is of a more absolute sort. Truth in deductive reasoning is necessarily true due to the soundness and validity of the logic. The punchline when you deduce it with logic has to be true. There is no other option. Science utilizes deductive reasoning when testing the boundaries of its theories with new hypotheses. A falsifiable hypothesis is posed. Then experimentation is conducted such that the hypothesis is demonstrated to be correct 
or is demonstrated to be false or falsified. The conclusion follows from there. Inductive reasoning, on the other hand, gives us a probability of truth with an error range to consider. That error range can be made to be almost infinitely small, but on some level, it still exists. Consider the sun for a moment. Due to our observations, hypotheses, and experimentation, we can say with nearly 100% certainty that it will rise tomorrow, but there is an error range. It may be minuscule, but it does exist. Perhaps there is a rogue, supermassive black hole headed our way that has yet to be detected. This could change the probability of the sun's rising. Science and inductive reasoning doesn't give us the same type of certainty that deductive reasoning does, and therefore it confuses some people and makes them uncomfortable with the answers that predictive science provides. Staying with our sun example, inductive reasoning utilizes facts and data and experimentation to predict that the sun will rise tomorrow with a calculated amount of certainty. The certainty is expressed as a probability, which also comes with a margin of error. If we were then to carry out this test, collect the data from our observations during the sunrise, we could then use deductive reasoning to confirm the truth of the hypothesis that the sun will rise. For this particular experiment, we can say with 100% certainty that the sun did rise. We deduced it by evaluating the evidence. While this particular hypothesis was demonstrated to be true because the sun did in fact rise, the sun's rising must be inductively reasoned for tomorrow's sunrise, and so on. In other words, just because the sun rose today and every day in the past, that doesn't give us absolute certainty that it will rise tomorrow. The absolute certainty that we often crave can only be provided by the past. The future is less certain, but not entirely unpredictable. The only way humans have ever accurately predicted the future was by using the scientific method, specifically inductive reasoning. However you view science and the scientific method, whether you grasp and accept the inductive reasoning, used to predict the future, or reject it based on wanting to hear different news, one thing should be certain to you. It is the most powerful tool humanity has devised to date for learning about reality, truth, and the likely future that lies ahead of us. We all share a reality where the future looms just out of reach and is shrouded in mystery. This can be a terrifying realization for almost anyone who considers it. Our only hope, in fact, the only hope that has ever been demonstrated to be valuable is to utilize the scientific method to give us our best chance of living our best lives. Without it, we are just blindly fumbling through the dark. Now let's discuss epistivism, skepticism, and the power of methodological naturalism. Since the invent of the scientific method, there are a few isms that have risen to the top of the heap. Modes of thinking that, if followed, can lead one down a straight and narrow path directly to truth. When we accept these modes of thought into our worldviews and utilize them, the dark veil lifts, and we are able to experience real hope, not just wishful thinking and make-believe. It's important to make that distinction now. Hoping that something good will happen, just sitting and thinking about it, does nothing to ensure that the future will bring anything good into your life. However, when we engage in real hope, scientific hope, the kind of hope that provides real results, our lives and the lives of everyone else becomes immediately better. 
Consider for a moment the reality of cancer. For millions of years, cancer has killed large portions of humanity. Currently, it accounts for about 30% of our deaths, and in the past, that percentage was likely much, much higher. Consider every son and brother and father and daughter and how they must have begged for the recovery of their cancer-riddled loved ones. Begged each other, begged the sky, begged the mountains, anything to help them. After all, there is a very slim chance that a person will recover from cancer without any intervention whatsoever. It does happen, but it's exceedingly rare. And for millions of years, people died. Hope did nothing to save them. After all, wishing upon a star doesn't work, and beseeching the sky is frivolous. Now, fast forward to the post-scientific method modernity we find ourselves in today. The survival rates for cancer are known down to the percentage point, and they are rather impressive. And new treatments arise every few years as more and more hypotheses are tested and pass peer review. Here, we find that hope increases with each year, with each new round of experiments. The entire process dictated by the scientific method, and people live. They love, they embrace, and they rejoice in the science. They hug the scientists that helped them. They praise the names of those that put all their time and energy into the scientific method to make hope a reality. In this way, science actually brings hope into existence. It manufactures hope, pulls it right out of the air, and gives it to a young child, a mother, a brother, a beloved son. Without science, there is no hope, and there never was, and there never will be. It almost brings me to tears talking about it in this way. But it's these facts that compel me to be an epistivist. An epistivist is someone that only believes things that have evidence, mountains of evidence, to support their belief. I don't want to just believe, I want to know. By following the strict rules of epistivism, I ensure that my bias is skewed towards truth and hope and away from whatever it is I'd prefer to believe. This truth and hope is of the kind that only science can provide. I'm going to spend more time on epistivism later, but for now, just know that the definitions that you will find of this word aren't that helpful. The definitions state that to be an epistivist is to reject faith, but that isn't true, not entirely. It's more accurate to say that to be an epistivist is to accept facts and reason and the scientific method. If you think of faith as hope, then to be an epistivist is to embrace hope and therefore faith so fully that you engage with the scientific method to aid in manufacturing it. While it is true that I do reject faith, that is, I don't believe anything without sufficient evidence, evidence of the sort that the scientific method produces, I do not and will not reject faith that equates to hope or confidence. Those forms of faith are firmly directed at science, where they belong, where they will be forever fruitful. Another ism that one ought to adopt is skepticism. Strict skepticism, rejects that with that which is not demonstrated to be true. However, once evidence is presented and once the science is known, then a skeptic ceases to doubt and accepts reality on reality's terms. Another way to think about proper skepticism is that 
any claim must be supported with evidence. Otherwise, the claim should be thrown out or doubted until evidence sufficient to support the claim is presented. It was once said that any claim made without evidence can be rejected without evidence. That sums it up fairly well. The key takeaway to this point is that if the evidence meets the scientific standard, then it warrants belief. If the evidence passes peer review, then take it on as true until further investigation warrants changing one's mind. Due to the nature of the scientific method, we know that further investigation is always underway. This is the mindset of a skeptic. There is one other aspect of skepticism worth uh, belaboring a bit here. While we just touched on this concept briefly, it is important to shine a spotlight on it and formally identify what we've just said above. That is the null hypothesis. The null hypothesis is statistical jargon for any claim that we are investigating is not true until it is demonstrated to be so. If I say I have a pure gold coin in my back pocket, the null hypothesis, and thus the strict skeptic, would reject this claim until the evidence of the coin was produced. Thus, the person making the claim has the burden of proof to demonstrate the truth of the claim. Conversely, the person considering the claim is under no obligation to prove it false. When faced with a follow-up claim like, well, you cannot prove that I don't have a coin in my back pocket, the strict skeptic can simply disregard this follow-up claim as well, and for the same reason. After all, one would never believe a claim just because it could not be demonstrated to be false. This would be gullible and would lead to multiple false beliefs. If I were to claim that a fairy put a spell on me that made me tall, you would not be justified in believing me just because neither you nor I could demonstrate that this claim was false. The claim must stand on its own, with evidence to support and justify believing it. While considering the burden of proof, it is important to consider one more aspect of skepticism. That is, that each positive claim must be taken at face value. To demonstrate what I mean, let's consider a jar full of gold coins. We know for a fact that there is either an even number of coins in the jar or an odd number of coins in the jar. If someone were to assert that the number of coins was even without evidence, our skepticism would require that we reject this claim. However, that doesn't mean that we automatically believe that the number is odd. The claim that the number of coins in the jar is odd has its own burden of proof to meet before belief can be warranted. We don't just default to odd because we have not been convinced that the number is even. This distinction is one of the hardest to grasp for most people. After all, if they are trying to convince me of a claim and I reject it based on insufficient evidence, then perhaps I believe that the opposite is true, correct? This is wrong, and once you see how it is wrong, you will start to see this misapplication of skepticism, the null hypothesis, that is, and the burden of proof in many, if not most, of the conversations that you hear. Again, 
any positive claim made must be supported by evidence to warrant belief. And if the claimant doesn't provide evidence to support their claim, the null hypothesis is to reject the claim. By rejecting the claim, I have not, in any way, determined the true answer, nor have I accepted the opposite of the claim. I simply remain unconvinced. By thinking in this way, you make it nearly impossible for someone to fool or deceive you. You are also spurred along to find the truth in your own claims. Justified belief requires evidence, so in order to believe anything, you will be required to know the evidence. And remember, your evidence has to be scientific in nature in order to be sound. So it needs to be demonstrable, falsifiable, reproducible, and pass peer review. Now let's discuss methodological naturalism. Methodological naturalism has gotten a bad name from its detractors, mostly folks looking to insert their own biases into the scientific method. Simply stated, though, Methodological naturalism makes one basic assumption, that all causes can be measured. In other words, they manifest in reality. They exist for more than zero seconds and occupy some amount of space. This is called an assumption wherever you might go looking for further explanation of methodological naturalism. But assumption isn't a great word because it implies that the assumption isn't evidenced or warranted. This is false. For a cause to produce some effect that manifests in reality, it too must have manifested in reality for some time greater than zero. We have no example of any cause that hasn't followed this pattern, and therefore we are safe to induce or predict that all causes in the future will also manifest in reality, with some probability of error. In other words, this isn't an unwarranted or unevidenced belief we just pronounce willy-nilly. It's an evidenced fact for every effect we've ever taken the time to discover its cause. If we don't go through the hard work of discovering what the cause is, and just call it supernatural, then we won't ever finish the scientific method and reap the benefits of that discovery. So perhaps it is better to say that methodological naturalism doesn't make an assumption that every cause must manifest in reality, but rather, for us to say that something had a cause at all, we must find that cause guilty of existing. If the cause doesn't exist, then there is nothing that we can say about it at all. Lastly, causes can be very elusive. If we fail to find it at first, which is a better attitude to have? That we should keep looking for the cause? or that something supernatural did it? The answer is clearly that we should roll up our sleeves and get down to the hard work of discovering the cause. Another way of saying this is that the process of the scientific method is worth doing. It has always been worth doing, and it is likely, with some probability of error, that it always will be. As a final thought, implementing this system of thinking has a few very gratifying benefits. While it may be obvious to you that I'm no genius, based on the clumsy prose that you just heard and my general mannerisms, I have been accused of being a genius on more than one occasion and by more than one person. 
This is due to my strict adherence to these simple principles described above. If you conduct yourself, that is, your thinking and reasoning, in the way that I have just described here, people will be drawn to you, and they will often automatically assume that you are very smart, very wise, very well-read, and more generally, very worth talking to. I say this not to boast, but to make you aware of just how important you will become to the people in your life should you decide to take on these systems or isms. In fact, I've had entire relationships that focused solely on my ability to reason this way. No longer will you be pushed aside or awkwardly appeased. People will no longer be able to discount what you say and how you speak because they will be forced to listen as they recognize the soundness and validity of your logic. However people decide to interact with you, one thing will be undeniable. That you are someone to be respected and that you should be invited to the table when it's time to work through the hard questions. You will be an asset, not just another crackpot spewing gibberish. You'll be relevant. In the next episode, entitled Numbers, we will discuss the importance of mathematical thinking and mathematical concepts. You'll learn how good of a mathematician you really are. The best in the world, in fact. And you'll also learn some key concepts in applying mathematics. Thank you, and this has been Ear Seduction.